The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good morning. My name is Mike Neglia, and I'm one of the elders at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. This morning you're going to be hearing three sermonettes based upon 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. I'm going to be handling verses 16 and 17. Then Steve Schultz will be taking verses 18 to 20. And Caleb Bunch will be finishing up with verse 21. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless the study of your word, that you would teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit, and I pray you would be glorified by all we think, say, and do. It's in your Son, Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as I'm going to be giving a brief summary on the first 15 verses to give some context to uh, where we're going to begin in verse 16. So in chapter 5, Paul gives hope to suffering Christians. And he says things like, If our earthly tent, our body, is destroyed, then we have an eternal dwelling awaiting us, which is in heaven with the Lord. Just as he says in Ephesians chapter 1, he promises here that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a down payment or as a guarantee of this future fact. Therefore, he tells the Corinthian church why he and they can always be of good courage. It's because of the Helper, the Holy Spirit, which dwells inside of us. You see, Paul doesn't deny the reality of hardships of living in this fallen world. He admits that it's far better to be out of this mortal body and to be at home with the Lord. But he encourages them to walk by faith by what they know to be true and not by sight what they're feeling, or what they readily perceive around them. You see, Paul makes an overarching point which will carry on through the chapter. He says, whether away from the Lord here, or at home with the Lord there in heaven, we make it our aim to please the Lord, because, in verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In verses 11 to 13, Paul defends his ministry and gives cause for his actions in attempting to persuade others. I'm sure Steve Schultz will address this very well in his handling of verses 18 and 20. But notice in verse 12, Paul addresses how his detractors criticize outward appearance and not what's in the heart. I will answer this objection when Paul expands upon it in verse 16. Please take special note to verses 14 and 15. It's here where Paul asserts that since Christians are controlled by the love of Christ, i.e. his sacrificial death on behalf of his people, all who are his have died with him, thus removing their sin debt, and they are alive spiritually with him as he is alive forevermore. Amen? In Ephesians 2.1, Paul tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. 
In verse 5 of Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that he made us alive in Christ, and therefore, since we're alive in him, we no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ, because we are his. And that leads us to my focus this morning, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Okay, the therefore in verse 17 is the therefore we just quickly discussed in verses 1 to 15, especially in light of verses 14 and 15. So Paul says again, from now on, therefore, in light of all these things, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now, regarding people according to the flesh refers to the old ways of judging. In other words, the way we viewed things as important prior to being born again, prior to being enlightened. Specifically, the way we judge people standing, or our own standing, before God what nationality we were, what race I belong to, what language I speak, my financial status, my age, my height, my weight. This is all referred to as carnal judgment or carnal descent. Now, because those of us that are in him have died to the flesh, died to carnality, and now live on, not putting spiritual stock in these old things, Paul goes on in verse 16 to say this, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Yes, people did once regard Jesus Christ according to the flesh. Perhaps some reading this letter when it was originally written by Paul had actually seen or known Christ in the flesh while he walked on the earth 2,000 years ago. The apostles sure did. And what did they value at least at first? He's Jesus, he's a descendant of David, he has Jewish lineage, he's from the tribe of Judah. In light of these things, Acts 1-6 makes perfect sense because many people at the time of Christ thought that the Messiah was what? Going to set up a temporal kingdom. They said at this time, is this the time that you're now going to restore the kingdom back to Israel? Do you see, they expected an earthly kingdom. They expected a promised king of the Jews who would free the Jewish nation from the yoke of Rome. They thought he would lead, lead a military conquest. They viewed Jesus as the literal descendant of King David, which he was. But they were expecting him to lead an army and kick the Romans out of Israel and to take his seat on the throne in Jerusalem, which he didn't do militarily. He did spiritually by dying on the cross. So, we regard Christ according to the flesh no longer. We don't look for him to be elected President of the United States. We see him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, sitting upon his throne, ruling and reigning from heaven above. Amen? We regard him as the eternal King, the everlasting Savior. His glorified body living on in heaven, not his earthly one walking the streets of Jerusalem or 
Massapequa. You see, Jesus Christ is now seated at the heavenly places, and we are seated with him in the heavenly places too. Ephesians 2.6. Why? Because we are spiritually in him. Verse 17. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, born again, literally born from above. John 3.3. 3. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new man, Ephesians 2.15, with a new heart and a new spirit, Ezekiel 36.26. The new man has new eyes, as in John 9.25, when Jesus healed the blind man. Yes, physical healing, historical healing. But it's from here where we get the amazing hymn, Amazing Grace, this has symbolic ramifications. You see, we were blind when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But now we see. Why? Because we are alive in Christ. We're new creations if we're in Him. There's no more record of wrongs. There's no more children of wrath. No more slavery to sin. No more bondage to the flesh and to the devil. You see, we rose spiritually with Christ. As Paul writes in Romans 6, 4, we were buried, therefore with him, in baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life in Jesus. Colossians 3, 1 to 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Back to verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14-15, like we reviewed earlier, we have died with Christ, in Christ. The old has passed away. The seeking to earn our favor with God by our works, by our religion, by our morality. All these things are filthy rags before a holy God according to Isaiah 64, 6. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. The old has passed away. The carnal judgment has passed away, putting stock in our nationality, our race, our language, our financial status, our physical shape, our mental abilities, our IQ, all of these things. This way of thinking is passed away. None of these things matter. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, all are one in Christ. The old has passed away. There's no more walking in the flesh. Galatians chapter 5. Walking dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. In fact, let's read that together right now. If you'd open up to chapter 2 of Ephesians as I read verses 1 to 5. 
Paul says this, And you were dead in your trespasses of sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But God. You see, the old has passed away. It's gone. It died with Christ. But behold, the new has come. The new course of life, the walking in the Spirit, Galatians 5, the loving one another, John 13, 35, the showing evidence of saving faith, James chapter 2. You see, grace has come. We've received mercy, so now we dispense mercy to others. See, we are citizens of heaven now. Our country is heaven. The church is Christ's body on earth, being a witness to him and to his gospel. Amen? Now in closing, in light of verses 16 and 17, I have four quick points of application. Number one, do not judge according to the world's standards, but according to Christ's standards. Number two, constantly, by grace, put to death the old man through prayer, through study of the word, through accountability, which comes from the church, put to death the old man. And as a new creation, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Behold, everything is new. It's our new chance. And number four, be a faithful witness. Persuade others. Plead with them to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And this will lead to verses 18 to 20 and Steve Schultz. Good morning, Redeeming Grace Fellowship. Uh, good to be with you again. Uh, before I start, I want to thank Mike for setting me up for uh, verses 18 through 20. Uh, I'm sure he did a great job, and I uh, hope I can follow well. Um, to give us a perspective, uh, when I leave my driveway and I go up the street, uh, I run into an environment with a group of conditions that are intended to direct my actions. On the road surface is a white line that runs perpendicular to the flow of traffic. At the end of this white line on the right side is a red octagon uh, on top of a pole with the word stop printed on it. There's an appropriate response to those conditions and an inappropriate response. If I do indeed stop where it says to stop, I am afforded a safe condition from which to evaluate my surroundings before I proceed. If I do not stop, the consequences could be horrific and range from being arrested, for breaking the law, to injuring or killing myself or someone else. The existence of non-negotiable conditions produce either positive or negative outcomes, depending on how those conditions are approached. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul summarizes a series of conditions he has already identified in verses 1 through 17, when he begins this verse with all this. Well, all this what? Uh, one of those things found in verse 1 is this heavenly dwelling. 
It's this added clothing from verse 3. It's this life that swallows up our mortality in verse 4. It's this Holy Spirit that is guaranteed to us in verse 5. It's this anticipation of being home with the Lord and away from the groaning and being burdened in verse 8. It's this awareness of the impending judgment in verse 10. It's this motivational fear of the Lord in verse 11. This reconciliation of God that changes the heart rather than our, just our superficial appearance in verse 12. This love of Christ that directs us from within in verse 14. This transference of our death penalty to Christ also in verse 14. This calling to no longer live for self, but for Christ in verse 15. This new condition that radically changes how we view everything in verses 16 and 17, which Mike just went through. All this in verse 18 is from God. He's the one who made it all possible through Christ. Christ's life, death, and resurrection made every one of these things possible. Without Christ, we would be aware of none of it, much less experience or enjoy or benefit from it. Through his taking our death penalty upon himself, he changed our status from that of being God's enemies and targets of wrath to that of his adopted and beloved children. As he reconciled us to God, he removed what was making us warring parties, uh, but he also induced what has made us allies. And as a result, he has made us reconciled or right with God, no longer wrong. He also gave us the noble calling then to go out and do the same thing as his redeemed. Uh, our job now is to play our part in making others right with God. In verse 19, Paul summarizes the implications of all the listed conditions where he says uh, that God was making the world right with himself. He was reconciling it. Now, let's clarify some things. First of all, this term world does not mean all people of all time. It does mean the representatives from every tribe and every nation that were made right. This is a correction for those who thought only Jewish people could be right with God. It also means people, as indicated by the following phrase of not counting their trespasses, rather than uh, it meaning nature or the earth, as some have suggested. Um, not counting those trespasses removes that which makes us enemies of God and targets of his wrath. We are then entrusted with a message that by its nature of being a message is designed to be disseminated. If it were not designed to be disseminated, the text would not say entrusted with a message. It would say entrusted with a secret. Now, since it is a message and not a secret, since this message contains information necessary to change someone from being an enemy of God to a beloved child of God, since we who have been changed are charged with disseminating this message, since all these things are true, since they have come from God and not from man, since these conditions are, are non-negotiable, absolute, and highly consequential, and since there is one correct response by all his people, without exception, regardless of talent, gift, or temperament, we are therefore ambassadors. An ambassador seeks to establish and maintain peace between two warring nations. We who have been made right, therefore, have the privilege uh, and the responsibility of going between two warring nations, in this case, God and man. 
and uh, our job there is to negotiate peace. We make this appeal for reconciliation with those who are at war with God, not for our sake, though, but because God himself is making that appeal through us. We don't do this because we gain from it or like it or enjoy it. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. We do it because the one who made us right is appealing to his enemies and the mouthpiece he chooses to use is the one who is reconciled already. We, the reconciled then, implore or beseech with pleading, with logic, with rhetoric, with reason, with passion. We, the reconciled, implore you on Christ's behalf, according to Christ's desire, be made right with God. For the completion of our text now, I'd like to hand this time over to our pastor, Caleb Bunch. Hello, everybody. So now we come to the conclusion of our three-part sermonette sermon series on 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We come now to verse 21, which says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There are many aspects of God's plan that we call the gospel. But if you are aiming to explain the gospel, penal substitutionary atonement is the molecular center of the bullseye. It is the beating heart of the good news. And this little verse right here at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, here in verse 21, it is the most succinct and blatant and straightforward description of the gospel that we have. It is the most clear expression of substitutionary atonement, perhaps in the entire Bible. Sometimes when we are simplifying things, we do so by diluting them, by watering them down. Other times, what we do when we simplify things is we purify them by removing everything except for the most essential elements. For example, according to one article that I read, one pound of uranium has the same amount of radiation as one pound of bananas. But there is a process called enrichment by which you can remove many of the molecules from uranium until you have enriched it and kept only the most active parts left and all the dormant molecules are now gone. So everything has been stripped away except the most potent of those molecules and that little lump of metal that is left becomes radioactive and if you continue that process over and over with larger amounts of this material what you receive at the end is weapon grade uranium that is capable of immense destruction this little tiny verse is fully enriched it is like a nuclear warhead verse. It is one of those passages that is extreme in its abil ability to quickly and simply express God's purpose and plan for his creation. Charles Spurgeon described this verse as the foundation truth of Christianity. It is the rock on which, which our hopes are built. Of this verse, Philip Hughes rightly said, There is no sentence more profound in the whole of Scripture for this verse embraces the whole ground of the sinner's reconciliation to God and declares the incontestable reason why he should respond to the, amb uh, to the ambassadorial entreaty. Steve just explained to us the fact that we represent our king. We represent him as ambassadors. In verses 16 through 17, they speak to our nature. 
Mike talked about that. Verses 18 through 20 speak to our mandate, what we carry, our message, as it were. But verse 21 speaks to the message itself, the gospel. This is what we are called to believe. This is what we are called to understand and trust in. This is what we are called to teach. In a passage like this, every single word is vital to understand. But the way that we will cover this together is to break it down very simply like this. First, we'll consider the sender, and then the Savior, and then the saints. The sender. We begin by considering the divine benefactor, the God the Father. We learn that he is motivated in part by his desire to lift us up out of our current state. He does what he does, quote, for our sake. That's how the verse begins. This was not a sterile, emotionless spectacle that God put forth when he planned the plan of redemption. This verse is describing a rescue mission. This was for our sake. And now we arrive at the main verb, that he, God the Father, did something. And what he did was mind-blowing. He made he made Jesus to be sin. So what does it mean to be made here? What, he was actu- what was actually happening at the cross? What was God the Father doing? Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 foretold what the Father's part would play in this divine drama. He said, all we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. That's our part. We've done really good at that part. And the Father does this. It says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Made indicates a transfer. It means that our sins were moved away from us, taken off of us, and set on to Jesus. When God made the world, he created in a very specific way. He made everything that exists out of nothing, ex nihilo, as the theologians like to say. But when he made Jesus to be sin, he did not create sin. God never creates sin. Rather, he removed sin from sinful people like you and I and placed them on his own son. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 24 helps us to flesh out this concept a little bit. Describing Jesus, it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The Father sent Jesus for this purpose, to make him bear sin, to make him the sin bearer for us. Just like in the Old Testament, when they would lay their hands onto an animal, to a sheep of some sort, and they would impute that sin to the the animal, now what God is doing is imputing that sin to Jesus. Not his own sin, He was instead bearing the sin of others. In this sense, God the Father made Jesus the Son to be sin. So then we consider the Savior, point two. Jesus, the Son of God. He is the one being acted upon. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is telling us that he was made to be sin. He is passive in that sense. He is the recipient in that sense. But notice that he was not an unwilling participant. He was made to be sin, but this was his plan all along, to, per, to follow the will of the Father and to die. Here he is described as being sinless. He, he knew no sin, it says, meaning that he had no personal experience with this sin. No is a, very, um, a term that indicates 
affection or love or experience. And here it says that he has no knowledge, he has no awareness, no activity with sin. He has never touched it. He has never come near it. This is the son that the father looked at and said, with him I am well pleased. This is the Messiah who committed no violence and had no deceit in his mouth, Isaiah 53.9. This is the lamb without blemish or spot, 1 Peter 1.19. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, it just simply says, in him there is no sin. Consider how the author of Hebrews goes out of his way to cover every possible angle of his sinlessness. It says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. What kind? He says, this kind, such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted in the heavens. And then it describes his priestly role like this. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He does not need to sacrifice for himself because he has no sin. And his sacrifice was not continual. It was once for all and permanent. Jesus is not a savior because he was able to physically feed people, although he did that. He is not called savior because he was able to cast out demons from people, although he physically did that. He, he literally did that. In the spiritual realm, he had all control. He is not just considered the Savior because he was able to heal physical bodies, although he certainly did that. He is called the Savior because of what he did at the cross. For example, when Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, was being foretold about the coming of Jesus, when God was explaining to him what's going on with Mary, he tells Joseph through the, uh, through the angel in Matthew 121, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He is the Savior because he is rescuing us from our sins. So at the cross, the Father laid our sin on Jesus and crushed him to satisfy our judgment. My friend Brian Payne calls this divine self-satisfaction by divine self-substitution. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 says it this way, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So now we have seen the role of the sender and the Savior. Let's now consider the saints. There is a transition that occurs here in the second part of the verse. This little tiny word, that. And this word, that, that is a conjunction of purpose. You could just as easily translate it as so that. It is revealing why these things have taken place. What is the point? Because Jesus was already righteous, and God the Father was already righteous, but God needed to have a way to make people righteous. So he is explaining now why God has done what he has done. God has done this so that we would be righteous. But don't miss the union with Christ is central to this passage. It's only in him that we become the righteousness of God. So if you are to, uh, if you are united to Christ, that means that you are seen as not only sinless, because your sin has been taken away, but you are also given something. You are not now seen as holy. All of the righteousness that Jesus performed has now been given to you. Remember when Jesus was with John the Baptist and he says, I must do this to fulfill all righteousness. John the Baptist was confused because he was thinking of all the people in the world that don't need to be baptized. 
It's Jesus. And he says to Jesus, you should baptize me. But Jesus says, I must do this to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? It means that everywhere Jesus ever, or everywhere we have ever failed, Jesus succeeded. And he gives that success. He gives that obedience. He gives that righteousness to us in this great exchange that happens at the cross. It is a beautiful but unfair trade. All of my sin goes to him. All of his righteousness comes to me. But Jeff, I think Jeff Thomas actually explains this really well. He says, um, God made us the righteousness of God in Christ. He became sin with our sin so that we might become righteousness with his righteousness. Jesus took our place and we take his. We sinned, Christ suffered. He obeyed, we are made righteous. That is a really great explanation. This is at the core of the good news. This is central to the gospel. The question is, do you believe this? The bad news is that you are not righteous. The number one thing that people need in this life is to be made righteous. And you cannot be righteous on your own. You have not been righteous. You have sinned. You have failed. You have fallen short. You have missed the mark. You are not righteous in and of yourself. But the good news is that Jesus was righteous. And he gives us his righteousness, righteousness freely by his death at the cross. For our sake, he, God the Father, made to be sin, him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. God, I pray that for everyone who is hearing these words today, everyone that doesn't know you, Lord, they would see the truth of the gospel and they would believe it and that they would receive that righteousness that comes from Jesus. Lord, I pray especially for the young people in our church, the children and the young adults who are watching this with their parents or watching this in their rooms or watching this somewhere. Uh, and we don't know who it is that's hearing this. I pray especially for the young ones who are growing up in the church, constantly hearing the gospel. Please, Lord, don't let this become dull to them. Let this hit them right between the eyes. And Lord, I pray for everyone who is watching this who is not part of a church, who doesn't normally go to church, who is watching this and they are they're seeing something that they are not used to seeing. Lord, I pray that you would save them by these words. But God, primarily, you wrote this to us who know you. You wrote this to Christians. You wrote this to believers. And I pray, Lord, that for those of us who do know you, that we would be strengthened and blessed and encouraged and built up so that we might live according to what we now know to be true, that we have been given your righteousness. Lord, I pray that this would cause us to delight in Jesus daily, to hate our sin more fully, and to pursue a life before your face at all times. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. I really am thankful that you are with us. Please reach out to one another and encourage one another this week. Blessings in the Lord. We'll see you next time.